Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Project podcast where normally it's my job to tell you the stories of the amazing people saving nature in all sorts of different ways from the tactics that they've used to create and nourish uh, successful careers in the conservation sector through to their inspiring and passionate beginnings in wildlife, the environment and the outdoors and covering the current environmental topics of the day as well. But this is a slightly different episode from normal. Today I'm bringing you a behind-the-scenes glimpse to my recent visit to BBC Radio Bristol, where I was lucky enough and privileged to be invited by uh, a BBC Radio 4 producer, Andrew Dawes, who I'd like to say a very big thank you to, to curate the BBC's Tweet of the Week archive. Now, if you've heard of Tweet of the Day on BBC Radio 4, that's the small segment of birdsong that they play every morning at 5.58 before the Today programme. And what they've started doing is, uh, instead of recording new tweets with people, they've begun inviting people to come and pick their favourite tweets from the archive and to have those played out over the course of a couple of weeks. So that's what I did. I went to BBC Radio Bristol, was lucky enough to get the chance to have a rummage through the archives, pick out my favourite pieces of birdsong, and to have those and my introductions of them played out on Radio 4. I'll include the links to the to the podcasts with me on the BBC website in the notes accompanying this episode. I was also lucky enough to be able to grab a few minutes to speak to not only Andrew, which you'll hear during the course of this episode, but also Emily Knight and Becky Ripley, the presenters of the Blue Planet 2 podcast that accompanied the BBC television series. And their podcast was shortlisted for an award at the British Podcast Awards in 2017. So it's well worth listening to my informative and hilarious conversation with them. And I also highly recommend going back and listening to the Blue Planet 2 podcast as well. It doesn't really matter that the TV show isn't on anymore. I really enjoyed their episodes. And in fact, I uh, binge listened to almost all of them back to back across the course of two train journeys in one day when I was going into and out of London. Um, so those come highly recommended. Uh, I think that's everything. Um, so I hope that you enjoy this episode and this little behind the scenes glimpse. And again, I'd like to say a really huge thank you to Andrew and to BBC Radio Bristol and BBC Radio 4 for giving me the opportunity to curate the Tweet of the Week archive. And normal service will be resumed very soon I'll be back with one of my normal conversation podcasts at some point in the next week or two. And it's probably worth me saying, as per usual, that the Wild Voices Project podcast is part of Wild Voices Media, a global project connecting emerging conservationists and environmentalists with aspiring storytellers. The Wild Voices Project podcast, you can find out more about that at www wildvoicesproject.org or follow us at wildvoicesproj on Twitter and you can subscribe in both iTunes and Stitcher and to find out more about Wild Voices Media the global project visit www.wild-voices.org Right, without any further ado let's dive in
Security. Hi, I've got a meeting with Andrew Dawes today. Staff or are you a visitor? I'm a visitor. I think I'm in parking space number eight. Uh, what's your name? Uh, it's Matt Williams. Okay, you're in uh, B26. I'll, uh, I'll come out now and show you where it is and then and, uh, come back to security and sign in, alright? Yep, great. Thanks very much. Uh, can, you, can you do some level, Andrew? Hello. Hello. Uh, I'm Andrew Dawes, I'm sitting here with Matt Williams, and I'm going to talk about stuff. <laughs> stuff. <laughs> okay, Andrew, would you mind just saying uh, who you are and what it is that you do here at the BBC? Hello, I'm Andrew Dawes, um, and I've been at the BBC since 1993. I've worked at the Natural History Unit for 23 years, um, worked in all air areas, but the last 10 years I've been working in wildlife radio. So I've been making programmes such as Living World, um, saving Species, Tweet of the Day, which you've been involved with, which is very kind you've come along, um, and programmes like like that. And um, now I work for the Network Radio Department in Bristol, and we make a lot of programmes, including things like Natural Histories, um, farming programmes, rural affairs programmes, arts, poetry, any questions, all those sort of things. So it's a big department that makes yeah. a lot of... Um, Radio 4, Radio 3 and in increasingly podcast type um, programmes and last year we had the Blue Planet podcast which was a bit of a phenomenon which I think you're going to meet later on in the day you're going to meet Becky who was the producer of the Blue Planet podcast. Yeah I'm very excited to meet Becky I've been listening to the podcast all week and so it's going to be uh, it's going to be great to meet her in yeah. person and um, thank you very much for, as well for inviting me along here today when I got your email saying that you, you'd like me to come in and do do some stuff for Tweet of the Week. It was kind of a week, uh, kind of a dream come true, really, because, you know, I've been listening to Tweet of the Day for for years and it's, you know, it's become a little bit of an institution in its own right, particularly for those of us who are really into our birds and wildlife. So I want to turn this morning on its head slightly or turn the tables on you and ask you if you were doing your own Tweet of the Day, what would what would your pick of species be? I think before I answer that question, I say thank you for coming to work on Tweet, Tweet the Week because I picked up your podcast about a year ago and I was just taken over by the fact that there's not many people doing what you're doing. So well done. And um, Yeah, so what what would I do if it was my Tweet of the Week? Um, I'd probably do otters, but they're not birds really because <laughs> I spent a long part of my early uh, career in conservation studying otters, but that doesn't really work. But I'm really into COVID. COVID to my, my thing. I lived down in Dorset for a while and um, we used to get rooks coming in the garden and when they used to come in the garden I just got fascinated because I'd get two or three then five or six and then you'd have 20 or 30 in the garden with some jackdaws coming in as well so uh, I started getting into COVID intelligence and COVID uh, behavioural studies and I made a programme must be about five years ago now called Feathered Apes uh, with the Cambridge University um, Jackdaw Project mm. and that was fascinating because I went behind the scenes to see what was going on and just to be told that Covid's have that intelligence of a sort of two, three-year-old human being just blow, blows the mind away and the fact that jackdaws have that ability to, to communicate through their eyes to other jackdaws and communicate what's going on and to find out that ravens can count how many ravens go into a colony and how many ravens come out. It's just fascinating what goes on mm. in the natural world. And, it, it, you know, I'm 54, 
I've sort of never, ever lost that wonder. Like you, I started about the age of five and playing with parents' back garden. And I've just never lost that childlike wonder of what the natural world provides. Yeah, I'm... Um... You're you're recalling for me, um, I think it was a BBC Natural History programme where they looked at one of the colonial corvids, so I think it might have been rooks, and the level of communication that they can do through their aerial dances as well to indicate to each other where there's where there's suitable carrion to feed on. It's just mind-boggling the level of intelligence that they have. It's really fascinating, and I'm hoping... Well, I'm not hoping. I know that I am speaking in a few weeks um, for the podcast to Mark Cocker, who, of course, wrote Crow Country as well. So I'm hoping to delve very much into the topic of corvids with him because I think it's a fascinating subject. And, yeah, they are one of the most interesting bird groups that I think we've got here in this country. I think it's not just corvids, but uh, I had a good example about this on um, at the weekend because we were having salmon sandwiches in the garden, with my wife and I. Nothing in the sky... Seconds later, four or five herring gulls circling around the garden, and you just think that that olfactory behaviour that mm. uh, uh, gulls and lot birds have is fascinating. And they're now discovering things like you know, the humble pigeon. It has an olfactory sense that allows it to navigate from one tree to the next, and that's why homing pigeons can work out where they are. There's a lot we still need to know about birds and wild, wildlife that we think. It's all known, but actually it's not. You know, and there's stuff that we take for granted isn't really what's happening anymore. And that's what I find fascinating. And it's 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 amazing. That's why your podcasts are great, because you're talking to people who are exploring stuff in minute detail and then getting it back out to the public. I completely agree. One of my favourite um, interviews that I did was with Dr. Annette Faye, who's a, who's a postdoctoral researcher at Oxford who's studying seabirds. And only about two years ago, discovered for the first time that puffins that we thought spent the winter in the seas just off the coast of the UK actually travel all the way across the Atlantic to Canada and she found this out by satellite tagging and we didn't know before that they traveled thousands of miles in the winter we thought they you know went 30 40 50 miles offshore so like that I think there's still so much stuff that we're we're learning and we're yet to discover as well which is as you say one of the things that i hope to explore and bring out in the podcast because i think that there are these amazing discoveries happening all the time sometimes they get a splash in the media sometimes they go completely unnoticed and um i hope i hope that the podcast provides a platform to tell some of those untold stories as well okay so you've got in your imaginary tweet of the week you've got otters you've got corvids <laughs> anything else you want to throw in some some um, insects maybe um yeah, I mean, I mean, funny enough, I had a conversation last last night with a friend of mine who, in the summer, we're going to go off and see purple emperors. Mm. I've only ever seen the purple emperor in its um, larval stage. Ah, now that's yeah. not not many people have done that, but the the great Matthew Oates took me to Savannah Forest in Wiltshire. We were making a program, and he showed me these tiny little squiddly little sort of sticks on sticks. And I was thinking, I have no idea what I'm looking at. And they were the purple emperor, various instar lar larvies, and he was explaining what was going on but we never saw them in flight yeah so that would be another tweet because i think i'm a huge fan and have been for all my life of the writings of dennis watkin pitchford better known right. as bb and bb was one of the people who brought um purple emperors back to fernham woods as he bred bred them and released them in fernham woods in northamptonshire but we're going to go to somewhere down in um devon i think i think it's going with, with a friend to see them flying. I've never seen them flying, but the conversation ended last night was bring two deck chairs 
two bottles of wine and we'll sit and watch them. <laughs> that sounds like the wildlife watching I want to do. Uh, but that is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that is definitely the kind of wildlife watching that you want uh, laid back with a nice drink in hand at the same time. I was really lucky enough a couple of years ago to get the chance to go to Nep Estate in Sussex at the time of year yes. when the Purple Emperors were on the wing. And it was absolutely unbelievable being almost surrounded by them. There were There were so many of them. They've really done some incredible things there creating the circumstances for for them to to come back which in in a lot of ways is involved just stepping back from the land and allowing it to do what it wants and i spent a very very pleasant half an hour lying on my belly in several cow pats um watching one of the purple emperors feeding on on a cow pat with my camera clicking away taking photos uh because they they like to feed on the salts in the in the cow manure and that was a that was one of the wildlife experiences that i came away from smelling the worst i think i went and i went and got changed after that one definitely <laughs> well, it's funny when you mentioned cow pads there because i didn't finish the end of the conversation we had last night about what we had to take with, with this yes i did wonder but, if you got something out <laughs> but, but but one of the best experiences i ever had recording um was i was making um some insert recordings up on the on the isle of isla for a program called uh, Saving Species, which went out a few years back. And I really wanted to see a, see a chuff. And the guy we were with, who was Malcolm Ogilvie, who was one of the, one of the uh, real greats of the Wetlands Wildfire Trust, mm. he was wandering around, and we were wandering around trying to find these chuffs, and we got the stage, we just thought, oh, it's not going to work. So we stood on this hillside, overlooking the Paps of Jura, and the wind was blowing, it was starting to rain, and we're talking about cow pats because, as, as you know, chuffs like nice soft cow pats that can turn them over, over and feed in, in them. And just as M Michael Scott, who was the presenter, said, we're here to talk about chuffs, 20, 30 chuffs flew <laughs> over the microphone, calling away, and it, I recorded it, and, it caught, and I just thought, that is what wildlife's about. You know, you, I'm there for work. I'm there thinking about the programme and who the audience is and everything else. And then... 20 chuffs go over and I sort of become this sort of five-year-old again going look look there's, there's chuffs everywhere in my mind obviously not on my microphone that wouldn't be professional but that is what it's about you know it's about being out there and you just think I'm not going to get this I'm not going to do this but take a bottle of wine get a deck chair sit there and watch the purple emperors or the chuffs or whatever it is come down and um, it's great wonderful <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, you've not seen purple emperors on the on the wing. I've not seen chuffs, so I hope that we both get our both get our targets this year. Um, I'm off to the Western Isles fairly soon, actually, as well. In a couple of weeks' time, I'm going to camp on the Treshnish Isles for a week, and then another week again in uh, late July to help with surveying of the Manx shearwaters and of the storm petrels, which. I'm really looking forward to. I'm not, it happens every year, but I've not been before, so I'm very excited for that. Oh, you you, you will love that because a, a few years back, I was, I was on the Carver Man, uh, and we were again recording programs, but we were capturing bank shear waters and storm petrels coming in, mm. and just I held the storm petrel in my hand, and I thought this thing is tiny. It's like not even the size of a sparrow, really, and it's flying across the oceans. It's how how are they you know and you just think you realize these birds are just tiny little engines of biology and genes and evolution and it's just fantastic and mm -hmm. it's um but um <laughs> i sent one of my contributors off um or sent one of our contributors off a chap called chris sperring who's a really good naturalist li lives near bristol uh to do a manx shearwater program on scoma 
and there's so many coming in he was being hit on the back of the head he was trying to record this program with the warden and all all you can hear is thum, 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 thum. <laughs> <laughs> Mount Shiva was like crashing in into the landscape around him so you will have a fantastic time yeah, in the West Niles very much looking forward to it okay is there anything else you would throw in for your for your tweet of the week um is, no, I think I think I mean I think your podcast is great, and I think I'm looking forward to hearing your tweet of the week on Radio Four, which will be in the end of May, beginning of June time, great. coming out, um, and then um, we'll look forward to hearing more of your podcasts. And I was very jealous you got uh, Satish Kumar to mm. because he's he is just Satish just is wonderful. wonderful. Yeah. He's absolutely wonderful. I've tried many times to get him, so you've succeeded. Well, I've <laughs> I've not succeeded. So well done, and I uh, hope the Wild Voices project goes from strength to strength. Thanks very much, Andrew. Cheers. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Is the mic okay there? Or... Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk talk to you. So when see you... how the levels are. Yeah, so yeah forward, forward off or on flight it's mode. It's on flight mode, yeah. Uh, and then if you whack the cans on when you're ready, we'll probably talk. Sure. Tim's still setting up, so... Okay. We'll, we'll, be, we'll, we'll wave. <laughs> <laughs> I'll look for the wave. Right, I'm Matt Williams, the presenter of the Wild Voices Project podcast, which tells the stories of the people saving nature in all sorts of incredible and inspiring ways. Sure. Yep, absolutely. Hello, I'm Matt Williams, the presenter of the Wild Voices Project podcast, which tells the stories of the people saving nature in all sorts of incredible and inspiring ways. The podcast presents interviews with guests who are artists, on-the-ground conservationists, writers, lobbyists, and conservation scientists, and explores the ways in which they're helping to protect the natural world and its wildlife. So the project started around two years ago. It originally began uh, began life as an idea for a photography project, but um, soon evolved or transformed, metamorphosed, shall we say, into an idea for a podcast, because I was listening to a lot of podcasts myself at the time and found the format really interesting and decided that it was slightly more logistically straightforward to do a, do a podcast than a photography project. And one of the main aims of the podcast is to really give a platform to people who you might never have heard of before. You know, we've all heard of Sir David Attenborough or uh, Michaela Strachan, but I really wanted to interview people from across the UK and around the world who are doing amazing things, giving their blood, sweat and tears every day to save the wildlife that we all enjoy and care about, but who very often don't get the recognition that they very, very much deserve. From a, from a whole range of places, really. I've been... Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I find the guests who I speak to from a whole range of different places. I've been interested in wildlife, nature and the environment since around the age of five, so around 25 years now. And that means that I've got a lot of friends and... Uh, peers in the sector, some of whom have been kind enough to be guests on the podcast. Uh, some of the other people who I've spoken to have been uh, recommendations from other guests. So at the end of each episode, after I stop recording, I always make sure to ask the question, 
who else do you think that I should be speaking to for the podcast? And then finally, I've been lucky enough to approach some people completely out of the blue, uh, completely cold, and they've been kind enough to, to say yes and join me for a recording of the podcast. So I've been interested in, oh, sorry, can I do that again without the so? I've been interested in birds and wildlife more generally since around the age of five. And one of my earliest memories is our family holidays down to the Dorset coast to Poole. And we always used to go there as a family in the summer. And I remember being on Brown Sea Island, which is run in part by the National Trust, when I was around seven years old. And this was back in the 1990s. And I was sitting in the hide and a very kind lady pointed out to me a sort of white bird that was walking along with very long legs and a very long beak amongst the seagulls. And this bird, she told me, was a bird called a little egret. And at that age, although I didn't know it, I was very lucky to be seeing a little egret. Today they're ubiquitous, they're found right across the UK. But at the time they were still fairly rare and it was only around the, the early 1990s when they began breeding in the UK. So that was one of the most memorable and important moments at the start of my birding career. <laughs> there, are, there are always plenty of times when you do bird watching when it's frustrating and you have to battle with all weathers and you can put hours in and nothing turns up or the bird that you'd gone somewhere in particular to see doesn't turn up. For example, a friend of mine who works at an RSPB reserve in Suffolk uh, sent me a text message during the day to tell me that there was a bird called a bee eater on the Norfolk coast. And so we rather valiantly made this plan to go and see this bee eater after work. It had been there for about four or five days, I think. And I picked him up on the way on the way there after work at around five o'clock in the evening. It was the summer, so we had a few hours of, of daylight left. And we drove around two hours to try and see this bee eater. And when we pulled up on this tiny country lane in Norfolk, we got out the car and walked towards the spot where it had been reported and bumped into another bird watcher on the way who informed us that it had just flown off. And we spent another hour there waiting for it to come back, and it never did. And I don't think that bee eater was reported again in that spot uh, after that evening. So that was one of the more frustrating uh, dips, as they're called. Dips are when you miss a bird that you've gone to see. But luckily, a few years later, I did manage to see Bee Eater, and that was also on the Norfolk coast. So that was wonderful. <laughs> yeah. The thing that fascinates me about birds is, in part, their freedom. So I remember very clearly sitting on the end of my bed in my childhood bedroom around the age of seven or eight years old, looking out my bedroom window and my father pointing out a grey heron to me flying past. And the feeling that I recall very strongly is just being amazed that there was something so big 
flying around in the world and no one was in charge of or telling it where to go or when to do that. And I carry that feeling with me to this day that birds are an incredible symbol of freedom and they embody that when they take flight. So that's one of the main things that fascinates me about birds. But also there's an incredible range of behaviours that you get to witness if you're watching birds regularly, whether that's a species you see once or whether it's a species you see every single day. And then finally, whether you see the birds that you want to or whether you miss them, going bird watching always gets you out into incredible places or gets you outside with incredible people and great friends. And whether the bird turns up or not, it's always a great experience. The feedback that I've got about the podcasts is that people really enjoy hearing the long format conversations that I have with the guests and that they appreciate the in-depth nature of the conversations that you can get in the podcasts that I do. The episodes are around anything up to an hour, an hour and a half. The longest episode I've done so far is around two hours. But at the same time, There's something really fantastic about being able to speak to a podcast guest in a natural setting. So I do a lot of my recordings in uh, in cafes or sitting behind a laptop over Skype. But when I get the chance to meet up with someone and to record the podcast as I go for a walk with them, I think that's the real dream because they're able to point around them to the subject matter that we're talking about and you're able to get a flavour of the wildlife or the natural place that the podcast is about. I did a really interesting one recently, which was with a friend who's reviving old lost pilgrimage routes across Britain. And we walked part of the, uh, it's called the Old Way across the south of England. We walked that a few weeks ago across the South Downs in Sussex. And I recorded the podcast over the course of the day as we were walking. I think that's the real ideal uh, mix of elements for a great episode. Okay, can I have a moment to think about that? Uh, Or maybe we can come back to that one, actually. Yeah, 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 that would be be great. (laughs) You never know, absolutely. You never know who's listening. Great. Hello, I'm Matt Williams, the presenter of the Wild Voices Project podcast, which tells the stories of the people saving nature. And I've had some... Do that again. Hello, I'm Matt Williams, the presenter of the Wild Voices Project podcast, which tells the stories of the people saving nature in incredible and inspiring ways. I've had some fun rummaging through the BBC's Tweet of the Day archive and picked out ten of my favourite bird songs to share with you. But first... I wanted to just talk about starlings and their importance to me. Yeah. Yeah, 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 sure. Okay, sure. 
Hello, I'm Matt Williams, and I'm the presenter of the Wild Voices Project podcast, which tells the stories of the people saving nature in incredible and inspiring ways. I've had some real fun rummaging through the BBC's Tweet of the Day archive and picked out 10 of my favourite birds to share with you. But first, I wanted to focus on starlings and the importance that they have to me. When I first became a bird watcher around the age of five or six, I've got a very clear memory of the first time that I saw starlings. And, um, sorry. But first, I want to focus on starlings and the importance that they have to me. I've got a very strong memory of being around five or six years old, when as a family, we used to go on holiday to the Dorset coast every summer. And a particular treat for me and my brother was to be taken to a fast food restaurant for dinner. And I've got a very clear memory of one evening sitting in the car park in the back of the car, eating some French fries, and on the top of said fast food restaurant on the roof was a flock of starlings. And their feathers were glistening green and purple in the sunset light, and they were whirring and clicking away like clockwork toys. Then, as if with a collective mind, they all fell silent at once and took flight. And from that moment on, I was spellbound. Since the 1970s, starlings in the UK have declined by around 66%. But despite that, in the winter, you can still see flocks of starlings that are millions strong, bolstered by the numbers of birds that migrate here from the the European continent. Several times, I've been to the Somerset levels, where you can see these huge flocks of starlings, often referred to as murmurations. On one particular trip... I remember spending half an hour standing in one spot, rooted there, as millions and millions of starlings arrived over the course of around half an hour. The sky was completely black for about 30 minutes, filled with the birds swirling and twisting and turning against the pink backdrop of the sunset. And then, as if from nowhere, and to make the moment even more magical, in the water in front of us, two otter cubs appeared, and started playing with each other. This was one of the most incredible wildlife moments of my life, and I think that if you want to see the best nature spectacle in the UK, you can't do much better than winter starling murmurations. So, later in the week, I found one of the previous tweets of the day, which is a story about the subspecies, the Shetland starling. But tomorrow, we'll be starting on Monday morning at 5.58 on Radio 4, with my first choice, which is Michael Palin, who will be introducing the red-eyed vireo. I thought that myself as I was saying it. Yeah, I'm not sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So I'm looking forward to later in the week when I've unearthed a story about the Shetland starling, which you can hear. But we're beginning... But we'll be begin there. But we'll begin on Monday at five fifty eight on Radio Four with my first choice, which is Michael Palin, who'll be introducing the red eyed Vireo.
Oh, okay, yeah. I'm recording. Right. Have you been reunited in front of a mic since <laughs> the... Uh... Beautiful. This is the first time that <laughs> my face has been so close to your face. It's very exciting. <laughs> Did you, you, you we, couldn't stretch to two mics when you were recording? <laughs> we always had to put the mic slightly closer to me and slightly further away from <laughs> Becky because Becky get, has a tendency to get very I overexcited. Yeah, I she booms. <laughs> we did get used to it eventually. Um, all right, that's fine. Well, you, t- you take it away. We're recording. Okay. Yeah, we are. Good. Okay. Well, would you guys just mind saying uh, who you are and what you do? Should we do it Blue Planet style? <laughs> yes, please. I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's us uh, saying BBC style. I'm Becky Ripley and I'm Emily Knight. No, let's do it non-BBC style. You go. Style. You go first. Um, take I'm, the word. I'm Emily Knight. I um, work for the BBC in Bristol. Um, I make factual, factual documentaries and I also was one half of the dynamic duo uh, that made the Blue Planet 2 podcast. Which is my cue to say I'm Becky Ripley and uh, I'm the other half of the Blue Planet 2 podcast. Uh, I also work for BBC in Bristol, feeding into Radio 4, World Service uh, podcasts. Yeah, I do factual All stuff and she does art stuff, really. Yeah, I'm the arty-farty one who uh, doesn't have to fact check. Yeah, she's also, she's also won <laughs> lots of awards. So oh, stop that. That's horrible. <laughs> you can edit that out. Um, I can't hear myself in my headphones, oh, by the way. Not? Should Hold I be on. able to? You should. You guess headphones. How's that? That's very loud. Is that very loud? How was that? How was uh, that? That's better. Yeah? Thanks. Okay. Yeah, yeah, now I can hear myself. Um, great. Well, thank you guys for being on the podcast. Um, I've really enjoyed, I was going to say over the past few days, but basically over yesterday morning, listening to all seven episodes of the Blue Planet podcast, which was a wonderful marathon when I was on the train. I was transported away from my boring train journey into London to a to an underwater world of incredible mysteries. Um, That's very kind of you, but that is too many to do back to back. You <laughs> must hate us. <laughs> I mean, when you've marathoned like an entire box set of 24, you know, in almost one go without sleep, like seven, seven podcast seven episodes is You must yeah, hate the doable. honk. <laughs> Not another I was going to ask for a honk, actually. <laughs> oh, we could do a honk. Can we we could do a honk? a honk. You want one now? Yes, please. <laughs> Are you ready for the honk? Honk! Did that peak? Yes. Massively. There we go. <laughs> that was right. the best fun part of the podcast. The rest was just talk. The best fun. <laughs> um, people should definitely go and listen to the Blue Planet podcast if they want to understand the slight in joke there, if they haven't already listened to it, because it's fantastic for the honks and for everything else in it as well. We also like to call it a cephala podcast. Cephala podcast. There was another one. Po- wait. Uh, oh, uh, a super podcast. Super podcast. Super pod that was is the like super a massive pod of dolphins. Pod of dolphins or, yeah. yeah. Um, Those jokes and more oh, available on coming. <laughs> <laughs> no end to the puns. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to very quickly ask, um, what was what was one of each of your favourite moments from the podcast? Maybe something that you learned that you didn't know before, and then also in the style that I've done this morning, recording. Tweet of the week. If you had your own chance to record a tweet of the day or tweet of the week, what would you pick? And don't just restrict yourselves to birds, but anything from the animal kingdom. Well, favourite bit from recording the podcast. That's really hard because there were lots of good... I think my personal favourite bit was when we had a very rainy day out in Western (laughs) Supermare trying to find blennies in... Uh, rock pools because that was just that was just a fun it day out it was freezing cold it was so cold I think you can tell from the audio you can hear us shivering yeah, yeah. Um, but I think the favourite thing I learned was the bit about the, the sperm whales the way they sleep upright in the water because mm-hmm. that sort of blew me away I mean you're used to being wowed by nature in a kind of like wow that's incredibly gruesome or wow that's incredibly beautiful you don't expect I think necessarily to be moved by it I think that's why 
the bit with the walruses, the walrus mother looking after her baby was so... Um, uh, sort of captured people's imagination so much because they didn't expect there to be this sort of really human feeling story in the middle of it about love and loss and you know wh what it means to have a family and all that kind of stuff and for me the the, the sleeping sperm whales was that because you you start asking questions so if people haven't seen the uh the the episode i should do a spoiler alert shouldn't i but <laughs> sperm whales honk sperm <laughs> whales sleep upright in the water some of them head down some of them head up in these sort of collections like they look almost like stonehenge um, and they, they say they only do it for about sort of 45 minutes at a time. But it's just this very beautiful, eerie looking thing, these gigantic animals hanging in the water. And you, then you start thinking about, well, are they dreaming? Uh, and, and if they're dreaming, what are they dreaming about? You know, because the reason they're all together is because they operate in these pods. You know, they, they, they have family connections. And there's this great bit where there's a, the baby wakes up before the mother does and is just sort of nudging her, waiting for her to wake up. He's wondering if he can get a drink of milk while she's still asleep. It just, it blew my mind. I loved it. Yeah, it's quite an amazing image. Well, my question that was going through my head when I was listening to you or when I see that image is, how do they not tip over? <laughs> what, sort of start floating <laughs> <Yeah>. belly up? You <laughs> yeah. could ask the same of you. This, you, know, <laughs> you, you can stand up straight. You don't, yeah. you don't wobble too I don't much. often tip over. No. <laughs> um, is it my turn? It's or? your turn, yeah. Do you come, come a touch closer. My end. Yeah. I'm, I'm the only person not wearing headphones, so... Yeah. Um, well, yeah, the, the sperm whales equally blew me away in terms of their language complexity. Well, can you call it a language? There's a whole other debate. But they have these click patterns. Um, and I remember interviewing John Riven, who was the producer of one of the episodes, the Big Blue episode. And he was talking about how the click patterns vary from, from family to family across mm. the world, um, which is which is amazing because that is therefore getting towards a, a kind of language and um and i actually really remember one of the click patterns i think it was the azores but i could be wrong um of uh, you know family of sperm whales in the azores whose whose rhythm was kind of like a football chant it was like duh, 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 duh. you just want to carry it on and be like bah, 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 whales. Um, but that that's always stuck with me the idea that that across the same species you've got different families within using different rhythms to communicate uh, uh, almost you know tribal that's mm. it's kind of like early language maybe i don't know mm. um uh yeah i have so much and also our love of cephalopods grew genuinely grew i didn't know much about octopi octopi octopuses actually um or squids before um and learning about how you know they are incredibly intelligent creatures that have a completely different evolutionary path to humans so we kind of can't understand their intelligence because we can't parallel it to ours you know we're very um brain focused and, and most of our actions come from the head whereas they have this ability to kind of think ar around their whole body and, and mm. we can't comprehend that can we mm. and 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 i don't know that that sort of that blew yeah. our minds a tiny little I mean, minds. yeah i was already a massive fan of the old um cephalopods i was operating at a, at a maximum love for cephalopods already but actually learning a bit more about them was great i think but the, the the deep stuff was yeah. great nuts i mean do, do you seen the deep episode uh if i have i think i have but it's a while since i've seen yeah. it obviously everything down there is an alien and a mystery yeah. and operates on a completely different sort of scale there's things that live for thousands of years there's things that are like move once a month there's things that don't have eyes there's, I there's just... things that are eternal pretty much that mm. eternally oh, yeah. clone themselves because you know the time frames down there are, are so 
again, unparalleled to what we know and, and, and know to be true on land. The coral that's 4,000 years old, Yeah, for it's 4,000 years old. That coral, that yeah. there am I. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the nice thing about making the podcast, because actually neither of us have... I mean, I, I've been a huge fan of the ocean, in a sort of... Ad, in a uh, Yeah, I'm just a massive fan of sea creatures, I suppose, but we don't have any expertise in this. So we got to be genuinely blown away by some of this stuff in the way that maybe people who work with it every day and you know the producers that have spent I don't know three months looking at penguins are no longer enchanted by penguins in the way that we are when we're like oh my god it's a penguin it's so cool look at it um so that just getting to really revel in the the wonder of it is was just great it's really mm. fun cool anything else you want to throw in so David I'd quite like to throw Sir David into the conversation. <laughs> She's good in any situation. I'm just going to throw Sir David into <laughs> this chat. Disrespectful way to um, No, I would never throw Sir David Attenborough. Um, but meeting him was oh, yeah. obviously a massive honour. That was great. Um, we didn't think we would. In fact, for most of the recording of the podcast we were sort of we were at this sort of distance from mm. so we were going we were going and talking to a load of the producers and the directors and the, uh, the production coordinators and everything but we, we never thought we would get to speak to Sir David himself and then it sort of came about quite quickly all of a sudden they were like oh no he's coming to Bristol he's doing an event we can spare you five minutes we got a special gold wristband <laughs> a special gold wristband um, access you know, all David yeah exactly <laughs> and he was just delightful and we turned up like drowned rats it was really wet and rainy and I don't know it, it it just all came together and we kind of tried to ask him questions that hadn't been asked in in his more formal interview scenarios, mm. Mm. Um, which felt nice, I think. Yeah, I, I just, yeah, it was just lovely to meet him, I think. Um, what, what was your other question? It was about... Um, oh, well, if, you did, if you did your own Tweet of the Day or Tweet of the Week, what what would you pick? Uh, again, maybe don't necessarily limit it to sound and definitely don't feel... You have to limit it to birds. Um, but what would you want broadcast on on Radio Four for a couple of minutes? I mean, I my natural instinct would be to go for squids because I do I love squid, but for mostly the same reason that Becky just said about the octopuses because they are because they're so completely alien to us and because we can't understand what's going on in them and because there's such a great range, right? Like, so some squids are these ferocious predator hunters that will eat anything and everything in their path and they're completely terrifying, and some are little. There's one called a bobtail squid, which is just the most adorable multicolored nugget that just sort of like <laughs> like squ- like squishes itself around the ocean. It seems to harm no one. Um, and and then there is like the colossal squid that we've only ever seen the beaks of, which are this mm. deep sea mystery that nobody's ever really seen. We only have estimations of what their size would be from the from the beaks that we find. Um, so they're just this incredible alien creature. But I, do you know, I, I almost want to rise to the challenge of to doing a bird because I've just recently got into birds. Oh, excellent! Yeah, I've well, I think the catalyst was um, I bought a house um, with some other people, and now I have a garden of my own for the first time. So we invested heavily in bird feeders and now we get um we've got there's three robins that come regularly all the time together there's a family of up to seven goldfinches which are amazing i've never i've never seen a goldfinch before and now we get them all the time in the garden there is a couple of starlings that haven't landed yet but they fly over Mm. um and some great tits i've found out that they're not blue tits not everything that looks like that is a blue tit, apparently. Mm. Some of them are cold tits, some of them are great tits. See, I'm learning, I'm yeah. learning. But my favourite are definitely the goldfinches. They're so beautiful and they they don't look like a, my idea of what a British bird should look like. You know, as an, as an ignorant person about birds, they're so exotic looking and it, it feels like a treat. It feels like I'm in some foreign country when I see them, you know. Yeah, and their jangly kind of call 
song really matches their name and their yeah. colour as well, I think. They're great. Exactly. Great birds. They're such, you know, spicy little creatures. And, and actually, and, and watching them, I can now understand why my mum spends hours at the kitchen windows. And, you know, I ask, what have you been doing for the last 45 <laughs> minutes? And she's like, just watching the birds. I'm like, what, what could they possibly be doing that's that interesting? <laughs> but they are. They're so, they've got so much personality. And, you know, I've, I could watch them fly from the bird feeder down to the um, bird bath and back again for yeah for hours mm. so meditative you know yeah it takes you outside of your own life as well when you watch another species it takes you outside of that anthropocentric way of thinking and you're like oh there's all these other lives going along in parallel to ours and we so rarely stop to appreciate that mm. Mm. but i do enjoy a nice bit of anthropomorphization like <laughs> gary's getting yeah, a nut exactly <laughs> oh oh we didn't like that one you know all of that kind of stuff but, so the robins they come in like little ninjas yeah, you've They're got like, a little pack of robins three robins yeah they're all called robin They're in your anthropomorphization <laughs> <laughs> okay i don't name them um but the, robin. but they come in that one's also robin that one's bobbin for no reason um They've, they come in, they look around like, where's the danger? There's no danger. I have one seed and then I get out of here. Whereas the goldfinches will come in much slower and they'll hover around the walls for a while and check that there's nothing going on and then they'll come in and they're, and they're constantly sort of looking around. Well, all of them are constantly looking around. But seeing the differences and the pigeons just sort of come down and flump right in the middle of the bird bath. All yeah. the boards, everything's everywhere. They're going on the bird feeders that are way too weak to support them. They just make a mess everywhere. But I kind of love the pigeons too. The, I think a lot of people who are into birds don't like pigeons very much, but I just think they're charming. They're really idiotic. <laughs> I agree. I think we would miss them if they weren't around. Like the passenger pigeon that went yeah. from being yeah. the most numerous bird in the world to mm. being extinct. I think if wood pigeons went the same way, we would definitely miss them. And the sound them. of the wood pigeon. Yeah. I love it. It's yeah. so evocative. And mm. Yeah, it kind of just reminds you... It reminds me of summer, actually, that, that kind of cooing. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And they're beautiful. They've got this kind of oil colour and the, the pink on their chests and the, the little spot on the back of their neck. When you actually look at them, mm. they're, they're quite beautiful birds. Yeah. Yeah, I'm keen. Becky, what would your pick be? I was thinking throughout Em's story, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go bird because I'm going to be a purist here. Seeing okay. as we have to feed into Tweet of the Day here. Um it's between two. Okay. But you just want you just want one. You can have two. You can do whatever you want. I've just got two really great memories. Um for your editing purposes, I'm just gonna go one. So I'm gonna start all over again because <laughs> it's gonna be way too long anyway, and I've got a meeting to go to. <laughs> all right. I will start again. <laughs> so for me, um I've gone on holiday for for years um to down to Wales and I love watching gannets. Um, and I just think they are amazing birds. I don't know if you sort of familiar with the way yeah. they just plummet into the into the sea. If, if you are they the ones that kind of fly under the water? Um, a little bit, yeah. They do, yeah. but but what's amazing from above water watching them is uh, they literally rocket. They kind of like hunk in their that's not a word, but I'm going to use it. <laughs> they hunk in their wings <laughs> um, to make themselves into a kind of uh, pellet and then they just go beak first super fast I mean I don't know how many mileage it's around 70 miles an hour and they've got reinforced 70 miles an hour when they hit the water and they've got reinforced skulls to deal with the impact yeah but you look at the head of a gannet and it's like yeah they look kind of I don't know 
they're ready for the sea. Yeah. And, they're and, ready to hunk. Yeah, they are ready to <laughs> hunk, which is the verb often used when describing a gannet's plummet into the sea. Um, but it's amazing to watch because it is just like watching these white bullets and then you see the splash and the, the weight of the water as they splash in. Um, and then I found out recently, about last year, this really tragic fact that pretty much all gannets die of starvation due to going blind due to a lifetime's worth of hunking now that it's a <laughs> now that it's a verb we're using hunking and pelleting um yeah so it's this really tragic lifespan where wow. they they have to um you know that's how they fish that's how they get their fish um but from repeatedly doing that year after year they they lose their sight um but they always lose it after they've given birth so you know they're fine in terms of the 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 longevity of their species um but they almost all die of blindness due to well of starvation due to blindness due to lack of i think there's a lot of animals like that it's about part of the brutality of nature i think it's i might get this wrong now but i think it's weddell seals they um need to break um breathing holes in the ice and they in order to keep them open throughout the winter they have to scrape them scrape the edges of the of these huge ice holes with their teeth and they all die really young because their teeth get so worn down that they can't hunt anymore. So they die well before their sort of natural So it's like the thing that nourishes them ultimately kills them. Oh, wow, it's very poetic. Yeah. (laughs) And if people go back and listen to my episode of the podcast with uh, John Wells and Cassandra Brooks, they can hear a fascinating story about Waddell seals. Oh, did I I get it wrong? Is it Waddell seals? Well, I think Waddell, Waddell. They're named after the sea down there, though, the Waddell Sea, I think. I think. Uh, yeah, Waddell seals. There's um, and they do, they do this amazing thing where they use acoustic blasts to stun the fish that they want to catch. Yeah, amazing. There's a very Ooh. cool story about that in the. Podcast do they do that episode. with their tails? No, no, with their with their vocal cords. Whoa! They can wow. produce a sound that's so many decibels that it stuns. Do they sing seal? The prey. <laughs> Kiss from a rose. <laughs> do they just stun them with a bit of Kiss from a rose? I really hope. I'm going to the Treshnishals in a couple of weeks. Uh, the seabird islands just off Mole to camp for a week on the uninhabited islands and apparently the seals there sing at night oh. which I'm really excited for that's oh. that's too poetic that is yeah. too much that yeah. and the fact of gannets dying from plummeting that's got that's got me <laughs> <laughs> right I think I think people need to use the studio so that's um, there are people keep appearing at the door so um Guys, just like it was a privilege for you to meet David Attenborough, it's been a real privilege for me to meet you today. Um, and thank you so much for your time. It's been it's been really great chatting to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation, and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org, on Twitter at wildvoicesproj, or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much, and until next time.